Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Deep Cuts, a periodic feature of the dirt that we aim to do monthly, where we dig in a little deeper on a topic from our main feed, saved just for you, our wonderful patrons. Thank you for your support. Yeah, thank you. This time around, we're talking horses. I'm a horse girl now. <laughs> yeah, so we, um, this is relevant, we promise. We discussed horses in our veterinary medicine episode, in which we mentioned Kikuli and his plan to turn that horse around, get that horse swole. As we mentioned there, Kikuli was a Mitannian horse trainer who worked for the Hittite palace around 1345 BCE. And we also mentioned that his equine fitness plan was part of a larger corpus of texts known as the Hittite horse training texts. So, to quickly summarize the Hittite hippology texts, that's very difficult to say. Isn't it? <clears throat> the first is the Kikuli plan, which we don't know whether it was written by Kikuli in Hattusha, the Hittite capital, or if it was written by Kikuli back in the land of the Mitanni, where he was from, or if it was adapted from a guy named Kikuli and just named for him, or something else entirely. So <laughs> we don't know anything. Yeah. So the Kikuli plan is like, is it Brussels sprouts? You know, like, they're not from Brussels. Why are they called that? Or... Jerusalem artichoke. There we neither go. A, There's another neither one. an artichoke nor from Jerusalem. Anyway, <laughs> following the Kikuli text, there's hippological instructions with a ritual introduction, which is known as the Old Hittite horse texts. And, uh, this is, uh, and then the New <laughs> Hittite horse texts, just known as hippological instructions, parentheses, Hittite. Just some homegrown horse wisdom from your, your horse uncle. <laughs> Now, we would love to read more of those to you, but they've only been published in German, and we don't have the translational chops or hippological vocabulary of Deutsch to handle talking about Ferden. But as a treat for you, dear listeners, we're including in the notes to this episode a link to the catalog of Hittite texts or <laughs> the CTH. The CTH. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I had real tea instead of decaf tea this morning. I'm on a tear. Section E of is Hippology, where you can click on each respective text and see a line-by-line -line translation from Hittite to German. And for everyone, you can click on a little camera icon to see images of each of the tablets. So even if you can read neither German nor cuneiform nor Hittite, you can at least get a sense of what Kikuli's disciples would have been working with. Isn't that cool? That's very cool. Yeah, that's it took some it took some sleuthing, but I found it. Good sleuthing. Uh, thank you. you. Used your horse uh, sense. Now, let's move on to another very different set of Hittite texts. We're no one trick pony. What? I'm just trying to Dude, pepper in some horse I, puns. I think you said we're no trick pony. 
I said, we're no one trick pony. Okay. All right. It's just like, no tricks here. Nay. 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 Um, So the laws, the Hittite laws were first written down Mm. in the early old kingdom. So old Hittite kingdom. So that's between 1650 and 1500 BCE. There's a a weird decimal point. I know. (laughs) 16.5 BCE. 16.5 centuries ago. (laughs) I mean, Um, yeah. Four of the many copies of the laws are in Old Hittite, and the remainder are copies made during the Middle Hittite or the New Hittite periods, which would have been from 1500 to 1180 BCE. May I I ask a question? Uh Uh-huh. Does the language change significantly? Like, is Middle Hittite, does that, that simply refers to the chronological period, or is it like Middle English versus Old English, where it's... Um, Difference in language. There's, there are, it changes over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. but it is I don't I mean I don't know Hittite but that's fair my that's understanding fair. is that um but also you have to think about it's rendered in cuneiform so it's not just a language written right. down it's something that's that right. they would have cleaned okay. up how they render it so okay. um something so it's that not hap- really so something that spoken- happens in Akkadian um over time is they get more streamlined in how they render it in in cuneiform so Mm -hmm. early akkadian is is very much like use of logograms adding every single um part of a word whereas um in later and sort of the latest Akkadian figured out their workflow. Well, no, you, you just, they get kind of lazy and it's, it's hard to tell how, so like if you, so in, do you see this a lot in languages? Like you see this in classical Greek where by the time it's Koine Greek, it's, it's kind of lazy. It doesn't have the specificity and it doesn't have all of the case endings and Mm. all of the, the, very formal aspects of it. And this is also something that's part of Semitic languages. So like Mm -hmm. the way that you would have um, like spoken Arabic versus modern standard Arabic versus classical Arabic. It's, it's in terms of how much stuff is, is rendered in it. And so just like with um, how Hebrew doesn't have vowels unless it's, specific it specifically has vowels and that's usually something that is a much more formal religious text Mm -hmm. so it's that sort of thing well the religious texts don't have the vowels the torah doesn't have vowels okay well you know you have you you have the the types that do and the types that Mm -hmm. don't um so that's part of so it could be something like that so it's not so much that the language is changing but the way the language is represented i see okay yeah thank you but we're still dealing with you know, like six, 700 years. So it's probably changed. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was just curious yeah. whether the old versus middle was a designation just chronological or also related to the language. Yeah. Anyway, let's well, get, let's get back to horses. Yeah. And so the old Hittite copies of the text of the laws are characterized by a more archaic form of the language um, and a form of cuneiform writing that is typical of the Hittite old kingdom. So that would have been whatever they had really like first adopted from other mm-hmm. cuneiform um, using societies. Mm-hmm. Um, only one new Hittite copy actually attempts to revise the laws. So they, they're just sort of recopying them otherwise and they just modernizing the language of the the old Hittite copies. Okay. So 
They all say basically the same thing, except for this one law, this one set of new Hittite laws that kind of went rogue. Um, (laughs) And so um, I'm going to quote from law collections from Mesopotamia and Asia Minor here, Mm. um, which is a fun book. It's okay. A fun book from my grad school days. Couldn't tell from the title. <laughs> what? Okay. You have to. Okay. Um, actually, you could get a, uh, was it a minor? Was it designated emphasis? I think it was a designated emphasis in like ancient law. <laughs> it was like really dumb. That's something, that, that's something you could do um, at my old school. Quote, the laws are formulated in what is known as case law. The condition if a person does such and such thing is followed by a statement of the ruling, he shall pay whatever shekels of silver. Um, someone may, shall be put to death. They shall something him or something similar like that. <laughs> Ominous. Um, yeah. This manner. See, see our upcoming Dirt After Dark episode. Yeah. Um, this manner of formulation is one of several types of formulation found in the laws of the Hebrew Bible and the Mesopotamian mm-hmm. law collections. No laws in the Hittite collection are expressed in the second person. That is, you shall not do such and such thing. Um, mm-hmm. Although such a formulation can be found in texts of a legal nature outside the law corpus, such as treaties or loyalty oaths. So um, if, you've, if you've read the um, Codex Hammurabi... That's something that's like, uh, like <laughs> that. A lot of them begin like Sha Awilum, whatever. So if a if a man, whatever, whatever. And then, if then it's yeah, just a series if, of right um, clauses. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now <laughs> I'm very excited. <laughs> Treat and, me treat me to this. And now, dear listener, we arrive at the anecdote that made me want to do this episode altogether. A very specific Hittite law about, shall we call it, romance and its consequences. This summer, from Nicholas Sparks. <laughs> the Hittite laws. Um, so Hittite laws, they deal with a lot of stuff around like... Um, there's there are sections that deal with like property damage and mm-hmm. and sort of recompense for that uh, things like fraud theft and then they get into sexual offenses. Yeah, I see you. You've eased me into this here. Yeah. yeah so this is Hittite <laughs> Law and Order SVU. Don't don't. So law number one eighty six. Whoever buys the meat of two yearling cattle shall give one sheep. Whoever buys the meat of five weanlings shall give one sheep. Whoever buys the meat of ten calves shall give one sheep. Whoever buys the meat of ten sheep shall give one sheep. Whoever buys the meat of twenty lambs shall give one sheep. If anyone buys the meat of twenty goats, he shall give one sheep. You can get a lot for one sheep. You get a lot for one sheep. Law number 187. If a man has sexual relations with a cow, it is an unpermitted <laughs> sexual pairing. He will be put to death. They shall conduct him to the king's court. Whether the king orders him killed or spares his life, he shall not appear before the king, lest he defile the royal person. Boy, it went from one sheep to... They went from zero to 60. <laughs> If a man has sexual relations with a sheep, it is an unpermitted sexual pairing. He will be put to death. They will conduct him to the king's court. The king may have him executed or he may spare his life, but he shall not appear before the king. But he will go to court. He'll go to court. Yeah. Um, but, the, but not to the king. 
So the thing that I remembered is one time <laughs> in grad school, Law and Order SVU, SVU, um, a uh, a thing that I remembered from grad school was um, one day in my like readings in a seriology like <laughs> class or whatever it was, um, we were in the middle of this absolutely painful class discussion because I don't think anyone had done the reading and there were like 10 Woof. of us. And my friend Eduardo <laughs> was like, so <laughs> we were talking about the Hittites and we were talking about, oh, we were talking about um, sexuality and and like discussions of homosexuality in Hittite law and society. Mm -hmm. And um, we were basically talking about how this was a really bad article and the article had a really bad take because it was framing homosexuality as something in opposition to heterosexuality. Whereas, mm -hmm. but like, but that's taking very much a present Western yeah, lens onto it. And so yep. we were talking about how sexuality and, um, and gender and power dynamics and all of the things that factor into sexual relationships um, are very different and very much rooted in one's own society. And so we were talking about this among the Hittites. And so things like how it's how you could say with a man or a woman, like sexual relationships with a man or a woman, like it didn't matter because they were both there and like that wasn't the thing that was taken issue with and my friend Eduardo is like yeah so you could definitely have sex with a horse you just like couldn't show up in front of the king and everyone's like <laughs> what, what? <laughs> so it just like took this like, left turn <laughs> and so um and my our professor who was one of she's like an actual genius she's like a MacArthur genius was like yeah, yeah interesting yes that's right in the in the law corpus it's like talking about how there are animals that one can have sex with and one can't and how it's not actually a problem you just can't then go tell the king about you it just you just can't be in the royal court or in front of the king or a priest and because so you will sully them what a day you had and it was the weirdest day of school and so that's why i wanted to do this entire episode it's from that time that eduardo like completely ground our seminar to a halt by bringing up um hittite, hittite laws about sex. having sex right. with horses okay. now listeners in trying to find more about this badly remembered anecdote from grad school i sent anna in search of accessing a copy <laughs> of this article entitled hittites horses and corpses on bestiality and necrophilia in the hebrew bible thank which you presumably got her put on a list <laughs> probably still haven't cleared my browser history <laughs> and alas it yielded nothing um, but nevertheless i persisted bless you um continuing with this thread of man's special friend horse um i looked to uh the book the rise of bronze age society travels transmissions and transformations by christian christensen and thomas b larson um and then anna i want you mm. to read the caption on the, mm -hmm. these two figure this figure here and then mm -hmm. describe what we're seeing in the two images figure 149 Bronze statuette of stallion-human relationship from Anatolia, parentheses, after Bittel, 1976, and parentheses, and a Scandinavian rock art depiction of a similar relationship. Photo, Thomas B. Larson. Okay. 
top image is a man. It's a, well, it's a, it's a bronze statuette as the caption says of a man standing and in front of him is a horse rearing up with the, and the horse's front legs are on the man's shoulder and the man's left arm is up kind of, you know, they're hugging. It looks like they're in doing a, like a middle school slow dance. Yeah. Yeah, there's there is room between them, but also the uh, the horse is very much a stallion. His stallionness is quite evident. Um, and then in the bottom image of the rock art, you know, it's rock art, so it's it's sort of stick figurey. But there's uh, the image of a man on the right with his arms up in the air, like, ah! and then what is presumably a horse, also very much a stallion unless that's a third back leg. And the horse has, it. I guess it, that's his mouth open. It's like he's going, buddy. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's kind of cute. It's like stick figures. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah, they're stick, stick figures. Figure so it's horse. A, a horse like, have it's like, like just a, a freaking horse, out. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, a horse going like, nah, and then the guy going, ah, <laughs> and they love each other. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's not an embrace in, in that one as much as not there in, is the, in second the bronze one, no. statuette. And so no, now they're I'm, just really happy to see each they're other. They're just really happy to see each other. Um, uh, I, I think yeah. that's kind of cute. Yeah. No, I, I found it very cute. Um, and so now I'm going to read from The Rise of Bronze Age Society. Please. Ahem. Um, and this is uh, beginning on page 324. So this oh, thank is you. The, Follow along, readers. <laughs> uh, this is the section entitled Royalty and Horse Sacrifice slash Copulation. Known oh. as oh. hierogamy. So hierogamy being like a um, hiero meaning like religious or holy cultic. Yeah. And gummy meaning marriage. So. Hmm. <laughs> Man-animal relations can be seen as important parts of rituals and myths during the second millennium, and the horse had a prominent position in certain regions, certainly in Hittite and Vedic society, and in the Nordic Bronze Age. Owing to this central role, horse rituals were linked closely to royalty during the earlier to mid-second millennium BCE. Um, and here's going to be a quote from Puvel, 1988. The Indo-European pattern of theriomorphic hierogamy... Whoop, whoop. What? Theriomorphic. Oh, theriomorphic. Right. Theriomorphic hierogamy. So, um, um, holy copulation with, with like beast forms. Um, and the Indo-European pattern was clearly king and mare. Um, the Near Eastern and Mediterranean one being queen and beast. Remembering, remember like the Potnia Theron that you learned about in um, Archaeology 101. Master Um, of Beasts. and so the examples being Europa, Pasiphae, um, mm-hmm. and the wife of Archon Basileus copulating with bulls. The Roman, the Roman Lita. women. What? Leda and the swan. Also. Well, yeah. So I mean, beast but shapes, she, but, but not horses. Like swans beasts. aren't beasts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, oh. we're talking about, we're mostly talking about bulls or like Roman women ordered to cohabit with Faunus's he goat. Hmm. Um, that in Indo-European tradition, the basic myth-sanctioned pattern was rather man and mare is made likely also by the Hittite law code. <laughs> hey. Um, 
Unlike the sweeping injunctions against bestiality in sources such as Leviticus 2015, the Hittite code expressly exempts from punishment men having intercourse with presumably female horses or mules after sternly meeting out capital punishment for such behavior with cattle, sheep, and swine. Remember, I read that about cows and sheep. Yeah. And your mom. Not specifically your mom. One's own mom. (laughs) My mom. My mom is great. Leave my mother out of this. Um, The only reservation is that the perpetrator does not come does not become a priest, which seems to anchor the practice squarely in the warrior class, that is, among potential candidates for kingship. You can't, then that disqualifies you from priesthood. Yeah, specifically okay. the the horse, the horse ah, or mule. Okay. Um, okay. The similarity to the man stallion, so now I'm back to um, Christensen and Larson. Uh, the similarity to the man stallion relationship, as expressed by the two scenes in figure 149, which Anna helpfully described to us, is obvious. <laughs> Yeah, well, even if there were formal, there are formal differences between the two compositions, man and horse embracing each other and man and horse greeting each other. (laughs) The main purpose with both representations must have been to put emphasis on the bonds and unification between man and horse stallion. Bronze Age Scandinavia and Anatolia shared parts of a mythological or religious context where man-horse relations were important. Within the framework of an almost pan-European emergence of social stratification and the development of elites and warrior aristocrats sees um, huh? during this oh, time. aristocracies. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So that, huh. and, and then it, it goes on from there. But um, if you think about what, all these places have in common and there mm. also are the um you you also have this in celtic britain there's a yeah a like sort of mythological uh, like semi-mythological or kind of like stand-in relationship between the queen and a horse mm-hmm. um and so what do all these places have in common you've got like hittite anatolia scandinavia vedic south asia celtic britain and ireland what did we talk uh- about in our, Did you want an answer? Because I do know. Yeah. What's the thing in common? Indo-European stuff. Yeah. So they all have Indo-European languages. And so is this part of Indo-European culture? Like horse, horse stuff. stuff? Yeah. Is it? I mean, that is kind it of seems, their thing. I don't, I don't know. Seems, I don't have an answer. It's Yeah. It kind of seems like that, which is another. See, this is why I have been like uh, chomping at the bit, as it were, hey. <laughs> to <laughs> to talk about this. No, it's really cool. I just don't have an answer for you. Yeah, because like, but know, it's something maybe. that has been like consistently relevant to episodes we've done lately. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> it's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, 
membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Well, just a brief dip into archaeology <laughs> then to close this out. Um, there are other references to ancient horsemanship. Amber, would you like to read your lovely oh, joke? But not a horseman ship. <laughs> yeah, so this is pulled from an article, a, a special article in the Equine Veterinary Journal um, from 1990. And it, it reads like an article from 1990. What? Um, <laughs> well, you'll see. Okay. It just... Like to me specifically, it, it's got some language that um, would have, like if this had been written within the past, you know, five or 10 years, um, that oh. language might be a little bit different. I don't know. It just sounded very 90s to me. Okay. Or very like. So very, it's like, oh, this was gnarly. <laughs> <laughs> something, something hot topic. I don't know. Um, and also I the, the parts that I excerpted are interesting specifically to me because my training is in, in faunal analysis. But also there was some interesting stuff from kind of a horse raising logic perspective that I hadn't considered because I've never raised horses. Although I grew up down the street from a horse farm and was babysat by the owner, owners of that horse, horse farm. <laughs> like and, um, horses. I was babysat by a, a herd of horses. Yeah. Yeah. So I like I got I was around horses a lot, but I didn't really think about the logistics of raising them anyway. So quoting from this article, which is by D.F. McMikin or McMeekin, maybe. Mm. Although horses once roamed Eurasia by the Neolithic period, herds were depleted by climac not, not climactic <laughs> changes. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> Uh, that's that's a different horsemanship. Uh, herds were depleted by climatic changes. Pull it together. Forest growth and human hunters. Herds did, however, survive on the Iberian Peninsula, the Eurasian steppes, and the perimeter of forests in Germany, Scandinavia, and Britain, where they were still hunted, along with deer, wild boar, and elk. Horse meat may well have been preferred by hunters. It is sweet because oh. of its high glycogen content, perhaps adding a predatory pressure on the species. Dietary sugar is commonly sought by hunting cultures and markedly improves endurance in man. There, there's that 1990s yeah. language that yeah. I was... Yeah, horse, horse meat is sweet. Yeah. And it's. I think a lot of it has to do with their like fast twitch muscles. And yeah. Their, you know, they're running animals. Yeah, and so. it tastes like a thing that runs a lot. Yeah. The first horse taming tribes were most probably from the Eurasian steppes. Around 4000 BCE, a, cl a colder climatic shift occurred here. This favored horses, which being large, long legged and able to forage in snow, were better adapted to cold than most domestic or wild herbivores. An abundance of wild horses led to the emergence of a horse breeding culture. Oh, the Shredny Stug. But these are hard words for these, me. These are hard words. Okay, so the Shrednistog are, this sounds like me trying to do a Swedish chef impersonation. <laughs> These successors of the Dnieper Donuts, 
inhabited the Naper Valley, River Valley uh, around f- uh, between forty-three. Yup. I might just leave that in though. <laughs> it's just like, just so you know, I tried. These successors of the Naper Donuts inhabited the Naper River Valley between 4350 and 3720 BCE, where there is evidence of a sudden increase in the number of horses at their sites at Derevka and elsewhere in the eastern Ukraine. In the middens at Derevka, 74% of animal bones were of horses. That's pretty significant. The Shredny Stoke possessed the tools to exploit these resources, flint, knives, axes, spears, arrowheads, and antler and bone implements. The dramatic increase in horse remains at Derivka, the predominance of colts and skeletal differences from wild horses, are all evidence of domestication. See our funna with fauna episode. Yeah. Yeah. Hunting would usually result in a greater kill of older animals and tend towards a predominance of mares. Colts are more likely to have been culled from domestic herds. And in those herds, you keep the mares alive because they're the ones having baby horses. So I have a question for you. Yeah. Fauna expert. Um, Oh, boy. So hunting would usually result in a greater kill of older animals and tend toward Mm -hmm. a predominance of mares. Mm -hmm. I understand that if you're like, Breeding, what you'd be doing is like killing the young colts because they would usually be a, the male ones. Yeah, yes. they'd be a pressure on resources that you need for the ones that you get secondary resources from and right that sort of thing. So would it be, but why would there be a predominance of older and female? Would it just be that females are smaller typically? Okay, in in species that tend to be sexually dimorphic, so the males are quite a bit bigger and tend to have sharp parts that can hurt you. Not okay. not in horses, but like in oh deer God. and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so But males would... are bigger. You go after the females because while they are still adult and have a lot of meat on them, they're not quite as big and scary. Okay. They're just easy. They're easier to get. So older mm-hmm. ones are easier to get because they aren't getting away from you. And females are easier to get because they are are a sexually yeah. dimorphic species. Okay. And I older just, might just mean, not necessarily like old, older might just mean adult. Okay. Like not, you don't go after the colts or the, you know, the young, because first of all, there's not, an, they're small, so you're not going to get as much bang for your buck as it were. Um, but also, you, I like, mean, yes, older animals are going to be easier to chase down, but in general, you see more adults okay. if these are hunted okay. animals and much fewer juveniles. Whereas if it's a farmed population, a domesticated population, you'll be seeing evidence of culling where you see yeah. a, a higher percentage of, of younger animals. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Uh, but, but, but. Colts are more likely to have been culled from domestic herds. Thank you, article. In addition, ritual entombment of both horses and dogs was found at Derevka, oh, indicating their importance for herding. Uh, presumably the dogs? Aww. I guess you can you can herd with horses, too. Oh, my gosh. They're just herding Hun- them in the afterlife. <laughs> Get into groups. Yep, yep, yep. Burp, 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 burp. I bite your your hawks. Uh, so their importance for herding, hunting, and possibly for raiding other settlements. Among horse remains at Derevka were found perforated antler tines, considered cheek pieces from bits, as in bits like horse tech. Uh, often found in pairs, these imply that horses were ridden. 
Riding is necessary for horse domestication because with herds grazing on an open range, control is needed to prevent the usual migratory dispersal. Men on foot, even with dogs, are no match for horses. I'm assuming that they mean in terms of distance, distance and speed. Otherwise, men on foot are a pretty good match for horses in terms of like hunting them or getting them. Even with dogs. (laughs) Even with dogs. Riding dogs. That's when I first read that sentence, I was like, did they mean they were riding the No, okay, you're an idiot. Okay. <laughs> Archaeological evidence of the dispersal of horse taming consists of pieces of harness, pictures, buddy, figurines, and <laughs> horse burials of the so-called Kurgan culture, which we mentioned recently. When did we mention that? Just now. Just just we not we, just now, but like um, it was like two episodes ago. I feel like we talked about it with the um Indo-Europeans. Yeah, but well, we did because you asked me about the tombs. We talked about in, in that Bulgaria in Bulgaria, and then we talked about Kurgan culture. I think when we talked about historical linguistics, like I think it was yes, the Indo-Europeans yes, yes, yes. because that's yeah um, our girl Maria. Yes, who's who's about to yeah? I was foreshadowing. Up. Ah, thank you. <laughs> Cheek pieces of bits have also been found at sites from Switzerland, Transylvania, and the Volga, dating from the third and fourth millennia. Uh, this is. Site sites Maria Gambutash. Hello. Highly specialized and successful nomadic equestrian economies flourished from 2000 to 500 BCE, especially the Scythians and Sumerians of Eurasia. Not Sumerians, yeah. but Sumerians. I realized when I said Sumerian uh, recently, um, I definitely did not specify for folks that it's not the Sumerians. C-I-M-M-E-R-I-A-N-S. Sumerians. Sumerians. Uh, and so the Scythians and Sumerians are distant relatives of the Shredni Stog. I must be pronouncing that wrong. Oh, I'm know. sure. Also, Turco- Turco-Mongolians far to the northeast of the Altai Mountains adopted the horse. That's nice. This led eventually to centuries of nomadic expansion, territorial conflict, and migration. In historical times, devastating invasions of Scythians, Sumerians, Mongols, Huns, and Turks brought to civilizations of Eurasia not only the horse, but the powerful recurve bow of bone and wood and hit-and-run tactics of warfare. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. Uh, and then this last bit is on writing technique, because that's, you know, who was the first person to say, I'm going to try sitting on that guy. <laughs> right? Like, among <laughs> among many other questions, like, that looks like food. I'm going to eat that. 
or just like, I'm going to get on that horse. First thought to milk a cow. Yeah. Like I'm going to get on that horse. Although few ridden horses are depicted in the monumental art of Egypt, this skips ahead chronologically, and only a single instance occurs in Homer's Iliad, written accounts of riding do appear in the second millennium BCE. A Mesopotamian fable of the third dynasty of Ur refers to horseback riding, uh, citing Gordon 1962. Riding is mentioned too in correspondence of the kings of Mari. In 1700 BCE, a court official, Badi Lim, cautions the king against riding horses, saying, quote, let my lord ride on a chariot or indeed a mule and let him honor his royal status, end quote. Although equids were ridden in the Near East, mostly they were asses and various hybrids more often than horses. Horsemanship of the time was apparently not adequate for cavalry maneuvers. Riding there was based on methods used for oxen and asses, which they controlled by a ring through the nose. Mesopotamian plaques, I almost said plagues. Mesopotamian plaques from 2000 BCE depict horses and onagers with reins to a nose ring, ridden astride but well back towards the rump. That sounds uncomfortable. With this, quote, donkey seat and no bit, control is minimal. Yeah, no kidding. A figurine on horseback from 1550 BCE and illustrations show the same insecure seat. What were they thinking? Like, I'm going to sit on this horse, but bad. There is also, sorry, what? I don't know. Yeah. There is also evidence of riding in Egypt, a horse from the tomb of Senmut from 1500 BCE, uh, oh, around the same time, was equipped with a saddle cloth of linen and a leather girth, just the bit that goes around the horse's tom-tom. Oh. For a long time in the Near and Middle East, horses were regarded as an exotic and foreign animal. Yeah, that's, so this is why I pulled that paragraph, because that's something that I hadn't thought about, which is... So I think of when you think of horse riding, you think of a bridle and a bit yeah. usually because the the bit, it, the horse's mouths are very sensitive. They have teeth in the front of their mouth, but no teeth sort of way in the back. And so the, the bit goes past the molars. And when you pull on it, the sides of their mouth are very sensitive. So they they feel that and very you can control them much more easily than with a ring through the nose and like sitting way back on the butt that just doesn't make logical sense well, to me it makes sense if that's how you rode um oxen yeah that's and, the, and that's so, what i'm saying yeah. like i don't have the right context like i am used to seeing horses ridden the way we ride them now but yeah. thinking about such what seems to me to be a very impractical way of riding. I'm, I'm literally putting the horse before the cart. Like I'm, I'm thinking of horse riding from modern perspective backwards rather than thinking of it from other animals were domesticated before the horse. And so methods of guiding and riding them would have been sort of the, the logical step. Well, um, and, and actually something that I'm including in the notes that we don't really have time to talk about today, yeah. um, is something else from a recent episode from our Hassan Lu episode. I had mm -hmm. mentioned that um, Anna Medvedskaya had uh, written a lot when she wrote about who destroyed Hassan Lu. Um, she was looking at a lot of uh, like hippological evidence. And um, there's a really great article from you guessed it, Expedition Magazine from the Penn Museum um, hey. about horse gear from Hassan Lu. Um, because this Hassan Lu was much closer to the 
like heartland of horsemanship. And so here is about six, 700 years after, well, up to somewhere between six and a thousand years from what we just talked about. So from the third dynasty of Or up through like, you know, 1500 ish BCE, um, that's a while before, but also quite removed from what's happening at a Hassan Lu, where they do have bits and bridles and cheek pieces mm-hmm. and like really, really gorgeous stuff. So I'll include that in the show notes so that folks can take a look at that to see cool. that sort of horse technology was not <laughs> horse tech. Yeah. Horse, horse dot, tech dot was, gov. It was very, very different in different places. And so this is clearly something where people as you see a lot, that it's not so much a diffusion of culture or technology as it's people figuring stuff out um, in very localized innovations. Multiple times people are like, I'm going to sit on that horse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but why? <laughs> uh, I guess if you see a cult, it, it's much more, it seems much more feasible than if you're just looking at a giant horse going, yeah, totally. I find horses very frightening. Um, they're big. They're very big and very strong and very but they nervous. Got soft noses. They do have very sweet, soft noses. Um, there's a horse that lives on a, um, it, well, he lives in a field, but he's outstanding in his field. Um, on a walk that I usually take around, around where I live. And, um, I've nicknamed him GI Joe, the GI standing for gastrointestinal because he's very gassy. <laughs> but, but I, when I, when I go for walks, I like to walk by his field. And if he's there standing by his fence, I go pet his nose. Ah, I do that with dogs in my neighborhood. <laughs> Different experience. That's what, that's what I do with Merle. He's basically the size of a horse. That's a big dog. Yeah. Well, I think with that, we'll we'll put this episode out to pasture. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your support. This is an anecdote. Ten years. It's been in my head for ten years. <laughs> well, thank goodness you let it out. <laughs> yeah, now maybe I can forget. <laughs> Seems unlikely. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, listeners, for your support. It means the world to us. It it lets us do what we do and we love doing this. Yes, we sure do. Thank you. Thank you. And we will be back. We will be back soon with some non-horse material. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're done uh, with the horses. (laughs) Yeah. And we've, um, we've got some cool stuff planned. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Bye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.